Hi, I'm your host James Trewick, and you're listening to The Art of Inquiry. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Paul Tyson and discuss whether magic, the realm beyond the strictly measurable and mathematically modelable materialist world, actually exists. I hope you enjoy. Today we are joined with Dr. Paul Tyson. Uh, Dr. Tyson, please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, I'm a um, a research fellow at the University of Queensland at the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies in Humanities, and uh, my main job is science and religion. Brilliant. Awesome. So today we're going to be looking at your book, uh, Seven Brief Lessons on Magic, which, might I say, I found great. Uh, It's not long or encumbered nor is it unsatisfying or too general. It has a delightful brevity and a digestible insight, I think. Rather than me talking about it, we'll, uh, we'll hear, hear the words from you. So let's get straight into it. But today we're going to be talking about the question, is magic real? And if it is, what is it? You know. So in, in the introduction of your book, you uh, like in the first sentences, you say, this book is about the reality of magic in an age of science. It is about what the truth lens of science can see and what it cannot see. It is also about non-scientific truths. While science can see and manipulate some very important aspects of reality, it remains remarkably blind to other things. Can you explain uh, what you're getting at in these opening lines a little bit more, as well as maybe uh, identify the issue within the 4M or scientific worldview as you talk about it? So... We've had this funny thing happen in the 19th century um, where uh, somewhere in the second half of the 19th century, a bunch of really uh, smart people got together and decided how can we change the world so that we make science the first truth lens of everything and um, sort of push religion to the side. Historians like Peter Harrison who study these things look at how all the way from the scientific revolution of the 17th century to the mid-19th century, uh, religion and science have been hand in glove. Then they kind of this transition comes, and a lot of it's actually produced by theologians, which is another interesting story, whereby everything has to sort of be seen through a, a lens of empiricism, of reductively measurable, observable things, or the lens of sort of rationality, which is a kind of a mathematical necessary uh, lens. And all of a sudden we're looking through religion through this lens. Surprisingly enough, a few things disappear when you do that, such as God, right? Um, All you can see is religion rather than uh, what the religion is meant to be about because God's not measurable. So we sort of developed this scientific way of thinking about the world, which is very kind of flat. It only has measurable and mathematical real things. Anything that's not measurable mathematical is no longer real. So in the way I've set this little book up, it's about all those things that science thinks aren't real. So magic is anything that's not real by a scientific lens. And uh, I mean things like love and meaning and intelligibility, consciousness, life, all these sort of things that science tries to redefine in its own terms or just can't understand or just leaves alone. These are the things I call magic. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's brilliant. That's, that's a great introduction. So I've just picked a few um, of your lessons and a few questions from each of them uh, so that people can kind of maybe get a taste for it as well as the overall argument as well. 
Uh, so we'll just start with lesson one, which is titled, We Live in a High Age of Magic. Uh, and I've just I've grabbed a quote where you say, the primary furnishings of our minds uphold an armed barrier between the way we think about the outer world of factual scientific knowledge and practical technological power and the inner world of imagination, meaning, purpose, and value. Can you elaborate on what you've said here? Sure. Okay, so... um. Uh, we had a chat the other day, you and I, and and uh, you've you've watched all the Harry Potter movies. One thing we're interested in is the kind of view of magic that's in the Harry Potter movies. So it's a very kind of technological idea. It's basically smartphones without a smartphone. So we've we've got this idea. We we live in a, a world where we're totally embedded in technologies that we haven't got a clue how they work. Okay, nobody I know is what goes on inside their mobile phone. You might have some sort of a theoretical idea, but it's an incredibly complicated wand effectively, right? (laughs) So we live in this age of technology. We haven't got a clue how it works. Um, We've got better gadgets than we've ever had before. So we're all kind of wizards in our own lunchbox. Um, And so in that sense, we we deal with things we don't understand that have special powers. So in that kind of Harry Potter sense, we live in a high age of magic, Um, even though the way we think about what's going on is purely technological. We don't think that there are little sort of demons inside the cameras drawing pictures, which you might think if you read Terry Pratchett, which is really good fun. But the world is kind of flatly material at the same time as being full of these incredible devices that do astonishing magical things. So we we kind of schizophrenic about magic. You know, we're practically magical, but we don't actually believe in it. Uh, mm. as real. But then we also have this incredible landscape of fantasy where um, magic runs riot. So uh, sociologically, this is really fascinating. In some ways, there's a connection between highly technologically um, dependent societies and sort of magical fantasy. So that's what I mean by living in a high age of magic. Does that uh, does that explain that? Yeah, and I'd love to also just quickly, while while we're on this chapter... Just flesh out what you mean by the barrier between scientific knowledge and imagination, meaning, purpose, and value. What is what is this barrier that we kind of are faced with? Okay, well, there's this wonderful guy called Bruno Latour, and he wrote an amazing little book called We, um, we Have Never Been Modern. <clears throat> and what he talks about is this, the way the, the modern world works in our minds is not the same as it really works in our actual experience of life. In our minds, we've separated nature from culture. Everything in nature is simply material and functional and manipulatable by technology. Um, And then culture is this separate world of meaning and value and art and beauty and religion, metaphysics, if you like it, um, you know, whatever, right? So we separate these two things out functionally in the way we think about the world but in fact they're always messed up in fact they're always together in our actual experience of the world but we don't understand them as being together we don't understand meaning and value and beauty being connected to nature and and uh, physical technology we don't understand that we sort of treat them separately in our minds so that you can be doing something so, so, so I'm an academic, so what I tend to do builders labouring to keep body and soul together. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done tiling, 
it's a difficult skill. It looks simple to just put a blob of of what they call glue, which is cement on the back of a tile, smear it around with the trawl and stick it in the right spot. But you've got to do it thousands of times until it comes naturally. And so there's a kind of um, an art and a, a, a sort of feeling and a beauty about something as totally mundane as being a builder's labourer. Um, but yet we just think, I'm, you know, I'm working for $20 an hour, um, I'd get more if I was doing coffee, but I'm too old to get coffee jobs, so I have to do this labouring. So I just think practically I'm doing this job for this purpose and it's all just kind of flat. But in reality, nothing's flat. In reality, every little thing is kind of infused with magic, um, with with kind of meanings and purposes and mysteries um, that, that aren't reducible to the sort of practical, functional world that we sort of train ourselves to operate in. So this, uh, so we, we've got this amazing way of separating um, our experience into meaning and fact, uh, when in fact that's not how we actually experience the world. So that's what mm-hmm. I mean by this armed barrier. And and you've got to learn how to do this. Children don't know how to do this. So I can remember one of might have even been, um, I think it was Hannah actually when she was two, one of my daughters, she used to always talk to her toast before she ate it. Uh, it would be different family friends. So there were Uncle David and Uncle Attila were very sort of um, commonly experienced people, toast toast peoples who um, then got eaten for breakfast. But the, the, you have to learn how to separate the factual world from the meaningful world, from the magical mysteries of life. And we, it's not natural to us. You, you learn it as you get older. Mm, that makes sense. So it's like like we experience the world and when we try to then make sense of our experience, you're saying that the modern uh, worldview claims to be able to flatten it all down and understand it, but really they're not doing that. That's what you're saying. It, it's not a, it doesn't work to flatten existence down to this materialistic way. We're actually not giving a true account of experience. We can't actually separate the meaning and the value from the scientific truths. Is that is that your argument? We can't actually do it, but yet strangely we do do it, okay? So I like to go for a walk in my local park and I have to make a conscious effort to get outside of my little tiny world of um, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, this is bugging me, that's bugging me, you know, what's going on on the phone, what am I meant to do at work, this sort of, We've got these this gridded structures of behaviour that isolate us from the magical world of a tree, <laughs> okay? Mm. Um, and so I have to sort of go past the tree and think, what an astonishing being, you know? And the, the, there's something divinely given and something sort of richly way beyond anything I could ever construct or be involved in in just a tree, right? Um, and it's right there and I walk past it and I need it. I've got to do it to keep me alive. But somehow I do it with my eyes shut. Somehow I, I'm, I'm breathing the air through filters. Somehow I'm sleepwalking. But we've got this way of being in this astonishing world and not noticing it. So that's the kind of armed barrier I'm talking about. I want to move on to lesson two so we can get into a little bit more of the meat of what you're really talking about here with magic. So lesson two is called Four Theories of Magic. Uh, so I guess let's just get into it. What What is magic in particular? What are these four theories 
of magic that you identify. Okay, so I've just sort of pulled four names out to describe different philosophies of nature. And there are two pre-modern views and two modern views that I talk about. The first of the ancient views I call animist. So this is um, the idea that the imminent world is full of spirit and being and life, okay? So uh, we tend to think of this as a primitive view of the world, uh, which is a term I'm completely comfortable if by primitive you mean prime, like, you know, the source. Mm. <laughs> but there's no sort of distinction between the, the magic of the world and the materiality of the world. It's all one big sort of soup of practical and magical things. And the, there's, there's another ancient view which I will call the Platonist view. So the difference between the animist view and the Platonist view is that there is a transcendent reality beyond what we can think of as nature in the Platonist view. The animist view, life and spirit are all part of every tree and rock and every artifact I make, humanity and, and everything, it's all sort of magical, but that contains everything. So whatever is, is kind of divine to an animist mm -hmm. sort of view. Uh, whereas the Platonists have a divinity that is beyond nature as well as within nature. So everything in nature only um, has its meaning and value because it's grounded in, 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 uh, in God, in, in the grounds of being that is divine, but that grounds of being is not part of nature. So you get a sort of a, an imminent uh, enchanted view in animism and then you get... Um, an enchanted transcendent view in, in Platonism uh, in these two different philosophies of nature. Um, and so the, those are the ancient ones. And then there's two modern versions of an understanding of nature, which I call the supernatural and the anti-magical. To the supernatural view, there's two completely separate realms, which is different from the Platonist view. There's a supernatural realm of, of God and... Um, spirits and things and then there's a totally natural realm which is not supernatural so the platonist view the 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 transcendent uh, is infused in the imminent but for mm. the supernatural view the transcendent is fully separated from the imminent so you've got two totally self-sufficient realms the imminent and yeah. the transcendent okay now once you've got two so totally separate realms which sort of really kicks off somewhere at the, about the same time as the modern scientific revolution, we get this idea that you've got two separate realms. Right. Now, now it's got a Christian origin because, uh, look, we'll come back to that later, but once you get this idea that you can have nature completely self-standing without the supernatural, and once you can, you've got science and mathematics and you can understand everything in nature, well, the supernatural just becomes redundant. <laughs> okay. And that's the anti-magical yeah. view where you've only got imminent nature. So the four positions, again, going back to the animist, you have a trans, uh, uh, a sort of a, a, um, a divine imminence where everything in nature is, is in a sense, God, mm -hmm. um, but there's no God beyond nature. Then you have the Platonist view where... Nature is dependent on God and 
is saturated with um, the gift of God at all moments, but God himself is beyond nature. Then you have the supernatural view where the transcendent realm is fully discrete from the imminent realm. And then you have the purely imminent realm of uh, the modern uh, anti-magical view where there's only things you can physically touch and see and that's it. So uh, those are the four different philosophies of nature that I look at in the little book. Yeah, brilliant. And so in that chapter, you also talk about kind of the progression man goes through and how we kind of move from one to the other to the other, especially with the the occurrence of the modern views. Could you just give like a, a brief rundown of kind of the way in which we, how we've ended up where we are now? Okay. So I don't, I don't think these are neatly progressional views. Um, I'm inclined to think that the what I call a Platonist view is the basic and original view. Yeah. Um, and um, that what I would call animism is a kind of um, degeneration from Platonism rather than yeah. something out of which Platonism arises. Yeah, yes, yes. And there's an interesting book by a chap called Brow, I think, um, Religion, Origin and Idea, which um, does a bit of anthropological search through different religious traditions and of, of all sorts of people. And, and notices that there's a high theology in all pag- what we would call pagan views. And certainly the little bit I know about uh, Indigenous Aboriginal theology, there's, um, there's, there's, there's genuine transcendence there. It's not reductively animist in the way that, um, that I've described as a purely imminent concept of the divine. There's a genuine transcendent concept of the divine in Aboriginal theology, very badly translated as dream time. There's a great uh, Zadok edition on this quite recently, if you if you know about this uh, magazine written out of Melbourne, talking about different Aboriginal understandings of, of, of God. It's a Christian magazine. So I think the Platonist view where the world is, is, is as Manly Hopkins has said, the world is saturated in the divine, in, in, in transcendence. Okay, so... So it will fall out. Okay, so the, there's a, the glory of God is always revealed in nature. And in, in, in a sense, nature's purpose is to reveal the glory of God. Um, and as God's creation, it, um, it is most fully appreciated when it is understood as pointing to God and has mm. been a kind of a communication between our soul and, and God. So that that's kind of a... a Christian Platonist view was was very strongly held to in what we call patristic theology, strongly influenced by the Greek fathers and expressed certainly through Augustine and um, Pseudo-Dionysius and all these other people that were important, even in the Western tradition, to people like St. Thomas. So there's this strong patristic idea of God as the grounds of being, God as the... Um, as creation is something that is continuous and always sustained by God, if God isn't making, if God isn't creatively bringing us into being right now, we all just disappear back to nothing. So this is an idea of creation that's not a something that sort of happens in time. It's back there somewhere. This is something that is continuously being done by God, so that all of all of the the world receives its essence and its existence from God and and in a joy of giving that back to God uh, worships through being whatever it is as God created it to be so 
so the, there's this patristic um, Christian Platonist idea of uh, the way in which reality is grounded in God and yet you don't worship reality. You don't worship tangible reality. Tangible reality is like an icon through which you see God and which aids your worship to God. So there's that kind of tradition and that kind of tradition gets sort of whittled away in the 14th century by a number of Western theological inventions. This is a long, complicated story. I can give you the very cheap and dirty version of it. Essentially, a thing called nominalism, which is uh, invented by really William of Ockham, uh, although it's been going on since Abelard in the 11th century, says that anything to, to for anything to exist, it must be a tangible, concrete thing. Um, so something like beauty doesn't exist. That's just a way of speaking. So nomos means name. So beauty mm. is a name. So that's nominalism. There's no such real thing as beauty. There's only the name we give to beautiful things. Yeah. Um, a flower is, that flower is beautiful. This cup of coffee is beautiful. Beauty is a word that I use to describe something rather than a thing existing beyond the particular cup and the particular flower. Right? Yeah. So that kind of nominalist movement separates us out from the idea of being dependent on God as the grounds of being. Um, and being becomes kind of self-sufficient. A flower is its own thing now rather than something that's embedded in, in the form of the flower, which was given to it by God. It no longer has a divine essence that is in some sense beyond itself, but its essence is entirely within itself um, and everything becomes a particular thing and our ways of seeing commonalities between different particular things become ways of talking rather than ways of understanding sort of transcendent essence. So right. that 14th century move starts to move away from a patristic Christian Platonist view of the world and uh, another important movement in there is called voluntarism and this is the idea that the volentis is the word for will so that will is the most important characteristic of God. Um, now, this is very, I'm going to have to do very dirty and cheap versions here because it's complicated territory. But essentially, the, the Augustinian idea of the essential nature of God being love and there being reason to love, uh, so there's kind of a moral and understandable quality to love, developed argumentative difficulties in the 13th century when Aristotle became really, really important in Western thinking again. And we got really, really, really fascinated in logic. <laughs> mm. um, the high age of logic is the medieval era. And this idea that reason could tie everything down and, and everything in reason is necessary. Reason doesn't do anything arbitrarily, right? So there, there yes. becomes this sort of clash between reason and will, okay? So the, the, the kind of question that people like Scotus, Duns Scotus are grappling with in the 14th century is things like if reason is more important than will, then, well, it's a bad way of putting it, but like if, uh, if God wants, does God do something because, it's reasonable to do it or because he simply wants to do it. 
If he does it because it's reasonable, then he is no longer God. Reason is God. Okay. Mm. Um, God is not sovereign. God is subject to reason, right? So, so therefore, will has to be the first definer of God's nature so that God wills murder to be good, it becomes good. Right? If God wills black to be white, it becomes white. Right? And, and this is kind of the, so there develops this tension between what's called intellectivists with um, Thomas Aquinas on one side saying, no, that there, is, there are reasons that God acts by, so he is not arbitrary and we can rely on his faithfulness because his faithfulness is reasonable, right? Um, and then this, the, the, the voluntarist reaction to this says, no, God is totally sovereign. He can do whatever he likes and nothing can tell him what he shouldn't do. He is the final arbiter of right and wrong or black and white or whatever, right? And so the, the, the move to... Nominalism gets rid of the idea of what philosophers call ontological participation. So instead of beings being grounded in the being of God, um, each being is its own thing, self-standing in the imminent world. Um, mm-hmm. So that undercuts the Platonist thinking. And the idea of voluntarism um, introduces kind of a radical irrationalism into the world Um which kind of produces a a tweak to pragmatism, okay? So you can't expect to understand things, but you can use things. And if you can reasonably use things um, at a reasonably predictable way that are probably dependable, that's better than essential knowledge. Right. So what happens is you get these medieval developments going before the Reformation, they're basically taken up by the Reformation. Um, so nominalist and voluntarist tendencies are very strong in Protestants. They're, they're also there in Catholics, of course. But by the time you get to the 17th century, they're getting really sick of Aristotle and they just throw a lot of Aristotle out. And right. then you've got a very nominalist, concrete view of the world and a very voluntarist view of human power. We're made in the image of God. The image of God is total sovereignty. Sovereignty means you can do whatever you like. (laughs) So through technology, I'm going to do whatever I like. So science becomes a means of expressing our godlike character. And at this point, you get this strong separation from um, the natural and the supernatural. And the natural is our world, and it's a world of pragmatic, voluntaristic power and influence using maths and observation and the experimental method. And, um, and so you get this, this strong movement towards a nature and supernature division. So, mm. and, and, and from this point of view, God acts occasionally in nature by miracles, um, but essentially nature runs itself and God runs himself in heaven, wherever that is. It's not a where question as far as our space time is concerned, right? So, so that's the beginning of this, separated cosmos um, and the beginning of a purely natural cosmos. It comes along through that kind of theological trajectory and um, I'm afraid we did it, the Christians that is. So I guess you could say this was the Catholic and Protestant, Western Christianity starts to, in grappling with the material world, the world of our experience, 
Uh, it's like they're doing what you talked about at, at the beginning, like the flattening. They're starting to flatten their experience. But then there's, at this point, with, with the supernatural uh, worldviews, they're flattening the natural worldview and then they are just disconnecting and exalting almost the supernatural worldview. Would, that, would you say that's, that's right? So that's why when God acts, it is it is a miracle because it is... It's not actually from this this flattened worldview. It's almost like it's a touch of the divine onto the flattened world that we now experience. Exactly. Yeah. So, so a number of things happened from this. Um, one of these things that happened from is this: we get this very subjective and personalized view of religion. It's it's kind of not part of the outside world. It's part of my inner landscape. So your personal religious devotion is what really matters rather than uh, what the church does or <laughs> uh, anything sort of public. It becomes much more private, and this is the beginning of the modern secularization of, of society. And once you've got a completely non-religious realm of public action and you've got totally imminent tools of natural manipulation like modern science, um, then, then, then the, the intrinsic meaning of things is pulled apart from the physical material world uh, in our minds, even though it's never goes, even though it's not apart in reality. Okay. Um, so when I, when I look at my wife, I don't think, hmm, that's so many grams of carbon-based organic matter. I don't think that. But for some reason, you know, it's just my personal feelings that I'm talking about if I say I love her rather than some real quality in her or some real thing that is love, okay? So even though we don't experience the world in the way we think we experience it, we've, we've, our culture has produced this amazing way of separating out the purely natural from the purely cultural uh, where all the meaning stuff is. And even all the meaning stuff now is not supernatural. It's part of, it's underneath an imminent horizon. Um, and this is where Immanuel Kant comes in. We, we can have the transcendental, okay? We can have, um, but we can't have transcendence. Uh, we only have the world as we culturally experience it and morally experience it, but the way we understand what's really happening in the physical world is through science. And, and then culture is a kind of a, a strange sort of um, epiphenomena of nature, of, of meaningless nature. And we project this out onto the universe rather than it being given to us by God. Uh, and so the, the idea that Feuerbach comes up with that we create God in our own image in the 1830s um, sort of makes perfect sense by that time. Once you once you've been through Kant, and once you've been through this this sort of separation of the secular from the sacred, so then it's very hard for us to, and that really gets the whole totally materialist view off the ground, and the reductive anti magical view of the world where there's only the material, and uh, everything I might think about, you know, meaning and beauty and value, is just culture, and what that really is 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 evolutionary biology or something right you're about to get on to the next question that i had but i do quickly just want to make clear this this uh move from the supernatural to the anti-magical so with the if, if i understand it correct what you're saying is that 
we started to, uh, you know, start to flatten our experience, but we left the transcendent there. But the issue was once we did that, once we removed this platonic worldview where it was an active participation between both both worlds, once we separated them, made them distinctly separate worlds, what happened was that it actually anchored us in the material. So we flattened experience, but we also flattened ourselves into this experience. And so then what that meant was that the supernatural world uh, was outside of man's reasoning and it was outside of our grasp. So maybe religion counteracted this and that was why personal faith became very important. Uh, But what then happens is because they are two distinctly separate realms and we place ourselves within the natural, the physical realm, what happens is that we end up just denying the supernatural or not caring about it or complete. It just becomes outside of our view. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Um, I I would dispute one thing you said there um, that I don't think we've actually got the material world. Yes. If you try and separate the material from the spiritual, if you try and separate facts from meanings, you don't get pure facts. You get another kind of faux meaning. You get a meaning of pure facts. You don't just get facts. So so this is really interesting in relation to sex, okay? So sex is a modern invention, right? The idea that there's, there's just this sort of physical thing called sex. I would be so bold as to say that nobody's ever done it. It's always a spiritual and human and mystical uh, reality in our lives, um, yes. but we think we've got, and we think we're sort of liberated and we've got sex now, but we don't. It's disappeared uh, to the extent that we don't have a meaning framework for it that that gives justice to the experience that we of of love. So um, yeah, so, but you're right. I think we we try to flatten reality into a purely imminent and functional realm where we have total sovereignty over it because God gave us power over the earth. This is this kind of a dominion theology, which is um, very prominent in the 17th century. Uh, Francis Bacon is, is really strong on this idea that God has given us dominion over the earth, and through making it useful, we um, are bringing on the end of time. <laughs> okay. There's a lot right. of theology in, in, uh, in Francis Bacon. Which is, is funny because, you know, Francis Bacon brought about the scientific method. He, like, wrote it down, kind of systematized the scientific method. But he did it from a, a theological motive almost, uh, which isn't isn't the way we would think about it now. And I guess that's what you were talking about earlier with the fact that around the 19th century, uh, there was a, a distinction made between science and religion as being opposites. Uh, they were opposed whereas if you look at how they've science emerged it emerged in unison and out of uh it's it's the birth really of of theology uh but anyway i wanted to get on to lesson five uh we'll skip ahead a bit you talk and you've talked about this a little bit you talk about the magic of quality and purpose so i was just wondering if you could give us a quick rundown of what the magic of quality and purpose is and in particular regarding love so what is the magic of love you've touched on this a little bit but i'd love to get into it properly Okay, so um, if you've got a reductively naturalistic, in the modern sense, view of reality, there is no quality. 
quality, you know, beauty, uh, right and wrong. These are qualitative terms, not quantitative terms. Okay. Mm. Um, so if if I see something that's beautiful, I might be able to quantify I like that, right? And I yes, might be yes. able to, if I see something that's good, I might be able to quantify that's good for something, right? Yes. Um, yes. But the quality itself is not captured by those quantifications. Okay. Right. So quality is a separate thing to quantity. Well, like it's it's conceptually different, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't think any any quantity is qualitatively and neutral. <laughs> right? mm, um, yes. Yes. But it's it's a false reduction reduction to view qualities in quantitative terms. But this is exactly what our modern reason does all the time, okay? Nobody ever studies goodness anymore, right? Mm. You might study ethics, but then you're studying different theories about what people think is good and bad. You're not studying goodness. So if you're a utilitarian, well, then your ethics is based on what gives the greatest pleasure, right? But... Why pleasure, which is a quantity, is considered a quality that is worth pursuing other than simply a biological preference is not clear, okay? So the, the point I'm trying to make about quality is it doesn't have a physical quantitative explanation, but it's fundamental to our experience of reality. It qualifies perfectly as for being magic in terms of my definition. You, you in, a, in another one of your books... Is it called Returning to Reality? I believe that's the title of it. It's a look at Christian Platonism. Anyway, in that you use some really helpful terminology that might actually help to make sense of what you're discussing here, where you talk about the one-dimensional versus the three-dimensional. The one-dimensional worldview being the material worldview and the three-dimensional worldview being the material, the moral, and the spiritual. Is that the three-dimensional? Anyway. Could, could you explain those maybe a little bit and explain how maybe the one-dimensional explains this flattening? It's not that we're actually flattening reality, but that we're just trying to view it from one dimension when it isn't a one-dimensional thing. So I'm saying like when I talk about, I talk about one-dimensional metaphysics. So we've got a metaphysics of pure materiality where everything is measurable or mathematically modelable and that's it. And if it's outside of measurable or mathematically modelable, it's not real. So that, that's kind of a one-dimensional metaphysics, whereas a three-dimensional metaphysics has the material and the imminent, fine, which is mathematically modelable, no problem, and instrumentally affectable, fine, but it also has a moral dimension, which is a qualitative dimension, and has a transcendent dimension, which is a spiritual dimension. And that everyone took that for granted until the success of the anti-magical theory of magic in the late 19th century. And, and the problem is we can't actually believe in an anti-magical world because it doesn't satisfy our actual experience. And I think this is why we have such an enormous interest in fantasy. Mm. So I, I make a point that one of the best-selling works of philosophy in the 20th century was um, Language, Truth and Logic by A.J. Eyre, which I believe sold about 20 million copies. I'm not sure on that. Don't quote me on that. But... That is an absolute truckload of copies for a, a book of so-called serious philosophy. And it doesn't touch the sides in fantasy. <laughs> with J.K. Rowling with 500 million copies sold, I mean, who cares for 20 million copies? 
Now, why is it so, why are people so hungry? It's because this kind of flattened out one dimensional, serious view of the world is only for armchair academics who don't actually live a life. That's brilliant. So sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack you um, from this magic of quality and purpose. I just thought it would be interesting to like give the background to what you mean with those those worldviews as well. So maybe let's get back on the question of, uh, maybe let's look at particular. What is What do you mean when you talk about this magic of love? How can we tangibly understand this? Theologically, um, I think with St. Augustine, that, that uh, God is love is the most fundamental statement about the nature of reality. And if you have a view of reality which does not account for sort of a kind of a joyful interdependence and a self-giving wonder to reality, you've got a totally impoverished view of how the world actually is. Now, of course, we, we have this in Christian theology, this idea of the fall. So there's an expon- there's kind of an explanation. It's not a philosophical explanation. It's a narrative explanation for why there is also suffering and evil in the world. But the problem of goodness is the problem as well. Okay, so why are they good things? Why are they beautiful things? These can't be accounted for if you have a very flat view of the world. So I think all of us experience love in some way or another. And sure, there's kind of biological and, and um, a need categories involved in love. If you're a, you know, a two-year-old and you love your parents, obviously if you didn't love them and you just left home and went out in your own way, you die. So um, sure, there's a dependency element. There's there's nothing. I, I'm not saying any of the things that a one-dimensional view can see aren't really there. It's just that they yes. they are not a full account. And the the thing that is most satisfying in life is love. And you, the, and and this makes perfect sense if God is love and if God is the creator. It's interesting how we have this this amazing infatuation, this is exactly the right word, in our narratives, our movie culture of romantic love. Um, Now, romantic love is a pretty recent invention. Most people in the history of the world haven't been terribly besotted and have had other things that have driven them uh, and made their lives meaningful, okay? So C.S. Lewis actually does a lot of exploring into the origin of of what's called courtly love and this idea of what we would now call romantic love, uh, an erotic kind of romantic romantic love. But other things were much more considered much more basic to our humanity, even in the Middle Ages, such as there was a strong in, interest in, in renouncing marriage and becoming uh, taking up religious orders. But that was driven by love, by love for God as, as the highest love you could pursue. So Augustine talks about this too, okay? So the the great love of the ancient world is the love of glory. So there are various types of love, but everything is sort of the things that really drive us, the the things that give meaning to our life are not simply physical needs. Mm. Uh, So I I think through love you touch what is actually important to to meaning in your own life, however however you touch it. and, and this is kind of a key signal that those other two dimensions are really out there and you'll never have a satisfied life if you just sort of try and be a consumer person and have a satiation of your physical desires. That's not 
a satisfying life. You need the magic of love. Exactly, exactly. This is such a, a deep, complex question and discussion. You know, you could go in any direction from this and there'd be infinite things to talk about. You know, you, you what you brought up earlier with the example of sex as well and the purely material view of sex is maybe how we see it, but it's not how it's truly experienced. Uh, it's, we never engage in that in, in sex in the scientific worldview. But I mean, you could you could see that you could go this way in anything, really. I do want to talk, I want to move on to lesson seven, which is your concluding lesson where you talk about uh, is platonic magic possible today? Uh, so I just want to, I want to hear like in kind of in summary, what is your argument for why platonic magic is important and how we can understand it as real in today's world? I, I think you can't get an explanation for why you should take quality, purpose, significance, meaning, intelligibility, why you should take any of those things as real unless you have a Platonist view. Within the anti-magical view, they're just epiphenomena. They're not real. Within the supernatural view, they're kind of strangely separated from our ordinary experience of life. And they're not separated. They're part of our life, right? In the animist view... If all you've got is nature, nature is, is, you can't say nature is good or bad. Nature can be ugly and beautiful. Nature can be um, uh, right and wrong. And, and there's no way of judging whether that's, there's no standard beyond nature. So just whatever is, is what is. But I, I don't think you can, you, you need transcendence in the imminence that is yet not entirely defined by the imminent to make sense of the world that we actually experience. And I think of those four models, it's only a Platonist view of magic that actually works. I think that's because it's true. (laughs) And um, true has a kind of a way of being hard to avoid, even though avoiding truth is what humanity is absolutely brilliant at. So very shortly, I, I would say it's the only position that feeds the hungers that people are obviously trying to feed through fantasy, or seeking through romantic love, or it's the only one that accounts gives a proper account for these these needs, these things that man is searching for. Yeah, I think it's little children are often uh, remarkably disarming in what they will believe and what they won't believe. So, a, a view that that is makes sense of the world we actually experience. Uh, let, let me put that again. Okay, so. So children don't have a sophisticated mental apparatus, right? Which means that whatever you say doesn't really matter that much. They live very concretely in the logic of love and meaning. You sort of grow, you may grow out of that logic and become deformed as you get older. And that's what we call growing up. But if you, if you, if you, I I used to walk around the park with our our children in the pusher when they were really little. And there would never be a situation where someone would not go past and not look at the child and not smile. And the child would look straight into their eyes and would have a connection of, of immediate sort of love of some sort with a stranger and wouldn't judge them, would just see them in some way for who they are and love them. And that's real. That's the kind of reality which is... You know, as Jesus said, unless you become a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This, this, this is that gateway, that spiritual gateway to life. 
and and uh, that kind of childlike openness to God in the mundane, to God in the ordinary, to, to transcendence in the imminence is only satisfyingly explainable to me in terms of the Platonist view. So I think it's immediately obvious any other view doesn't work. And so I think it's got a very good future. So if, if people wanted to, because we've only touched on a few of the lessons from your book, and you've got a lot of more a lot more stuff in there, especially regarding disenchantment uh, and whether it did or didn't happen and how it actually was thought to have happened and how we experienced it having happened. But yeah, if, if people wanted to learn more, if they wanted to learn more about any of these things that we've touched on at all, where could they get your book if they wanted to, to grab a hold of that? Well, it's quite easy to get on places like the Book Depository or Amazon. I don't know any bookshops that have it, but in the day of online books, it's you just type it in and it appears the magic book's quite cheap too i think it's about 11 dollars or something brilliant okay so it's seven brief lessons on magic by paul tyson if anyone wanted to get it paul just in closing we always ask every uh, guest if they had two book recommendations for everyone so one that's just a general book recommendation everyone should read x book and then another recommendation on if people wanted to learn more about kind of maybe the magic and or maybe the progression of our understanding of magic, uh, where could they go? So a book, just a general book recommendation, and then a book about this topic. Where, where would you point people? Okay, well, I think probably one of the best books to read would be um, C.S. Lewis's Perry Landra. It's the second one of his science fiction trilogy where Lewis tries to paint a kind of an Eden on Venus. He tries to think in terms that are deeply formed by Christian theology and this kind of metaphysical vision that I've been talking about uh, without the baggage of a world where that doesn't seem to make much sense, like our modern consumer world. So if you want to have a kind of a a feel for um, the way this sort of thinking makes you understand the world, allows you to understand the world, I think Lewis's Perilander is a very, very good book, particularly if you like things like imaginative science fiction and fantasy. So what was the other book? I can only recommend my own book. Returning to Reality is an argument for Christian Platonism, which I think is the, the metaphysical view that makes sense. So if, if you'd like to know more about that, then I recommend that one.